what would our world be without leaders, innovators, and kingdom builders? Welcome to Under the Crown, where you get inside the twisted minds of our host, Trey Carmichael, and the kings and queens in his circle. Covering leadership, marketing, sales, recruiting, management, and so much more. Under the Crown is here to help you build your kingdom. Are you prepared for the siege? What's going on, guys? It's your man here, Trey Carmichael, coming at you with another episode of Under the Crown. Today, I'm, I'm here with my man, Ron Lynch. And I'm going to let Ron introduce himself because, quite frankly, he shouldn't even need an introduction at this point in his career, but you never know. So, Ron, what do you do and why do you do it for the people who don't know you yet? Oh, it's funny. Uh, I, I assume that nobody knows who I am. So <laughs> um, I work often as a strategist for people. I tell people I think for a living. I live out in the middle of nowhere and on a farm in rural Texas, and uh, I've lived in cities my whole life up until about a year ago, but now I've lived out here kind of in the wild, and uh, I think for a living, so I've always done that. Um, I, I've worked in a variety of capacities in my life. I tell people I was a failed child actor. I was in a bunch of movies when I was between 20 and 24. At the same time, I started writing movies. At the same time, I was working in a grocery store, uh, paying my rent. And uh, eventually that grocery position turned into a full-time uh, CEO position uh, where in my 20s, I kind of worked my way up through retail. So I understood the business, business mechanics and labor and margins and sales and the things that you need to know in the sales world and in the retail world. And then I transitioned into um, making television commercials, specifically infomercials. And starting in about the year 2000, I kind of went on a tear. And I think I'm, I'm somewhere around five or six. I think it's about $6 billion in direct receipt revenue. So that's not like company revenue. That's like transactional revenue that we created and tra traced with 1-800 numbers and URLs, uh, $6 billion in revenue um, on probably 300 different brands and products. So that turned into teaching. Um, that turned into kind of being a full-time researcher. Uh, now I'm kind of obviously financially free and able to do whatever I want. So I, I, frankly, I'm a professional student. I learn as much as I can about topics that interest me and I dive into them, whether they be politics or survival or uh, electronics and NFTs and Web 3.0. And I hold a number of patents and um, I'm a weirdo. I do a lot of weird things. Man. And for somebody who has so many achievements, you are absolutely one of the most humble people that I've ever met. When I met you at the event, uh, I sat down with you and it was really like sitting down with any other person until you introduced yourself and you started asking me questions. And you have a very unique way of connecting with people and building relationships. Can you talk a little bit about how you do go about that before we dive into kind of the nitty gritty of everything else? Sure. And if you, I mean, if this uh, interests a, a listener, there's a number of other podcasts where I kind of dive into the process deeper. But generally, I like to know who I'm dealing with. Um, a lot of us enter into relationships, whether they're marriages or friendships or business relationships, and we don't know who we're really dealing with. And culturally, we mask ourselves. We want to be liked. So we, we appear to be the most likable version of ourselves. At least we try to be, I think, so that people will like us. And I, oddly, I learned that that's actually not that useful. I'd rather be liked or disliked for who I actually am. And I'd like to get to know the person across from me for who they are, a good, bad, or indifferent. I, I like a, a measure of honesty and clarity with them. So when I first meet somebody, I go into... Um, what I have dubbed the interview, which was taught to me by a mentor when I was about 22. And I find out who I'm talking to, and I openly reveal who I am at my core. And that repels a lot of people, which is actually super useful. And it attracts the exact right people, which is more useful. So it's a huge time saver. And you know who you can rely on and, tr and trust to help you get to your mission. And that doesn't mean people that you don't 
click with right away are bad people. It's just that you're not useful to them and they're not useful to you. And there's 8 billion people on the planet. I don't need all of them to like me. I just need to get from here to where I need to be. So what are the most common questions that you asked in those first innings? I ask who, the type of people you admire, like who are individuals that really lived and walked on the earth that you admire and the, and the character traits of those people. And then, you know, I ask about who you don't admire, who you have contempt for, and the character traits of those people. And then I ask about the, the word integrity, because I'm curious to, to see if people thought about it, because most people heard the word and use it, but they don't know what it means. And I inquire about the word honesty, because integrity and honesty are my two anchors. Now, that might sound kind of Boy Scoutish. You think, oh, honesty, yeah, tell the truth, big deal. But actually, honesty is not just telling the truth uh, when it's convenient. It's telling the truth when it's inconvenient. It's telling the truth with tact, because sometimes you have to say things that are truthful that end relationships or hurt people or redirect things very early on to make sure that you get where you intend to go. So telling, doing that without devastating another person is important because I do value other people. So I say, tell, you know, being honest to me is telling the truth with tact. Beautiful, man. I think that's a very valuable process and something that most people really don't go through. They're, like you said, everybody goes through all of their relationship building and networking just focused on, I want people to like me. I want people to like me. I want as many people as I can to like me. I need to shake as many hands as I can. And really, that's what gets taught to us is that we just need to have these boisterous numbers without those numbers always having to mean anything. And I think that it's a beautiful thing to really get past that with somebody. And in all things in life, picking is, is the most important thing that we do, selecting what we're going to pour our energy into. So picking a project, picking a person, all of that stuff is, is really critical to me. And most of the things that we're taught when we're young, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way to anybody, but they were taught to us by a, a, an echelon of society, be it our parents, our school, our, our peer group when we're growing up, that aren't particularly successful people. Um, we're taught rules by tools of mediocrity from people who lead mediocre lives. We're not taught great rules by people who have led great lives. I mean, you, you would probably want to sit down with a few people in history that led great lives and, and interview them and go, how did you do this? You're going to find there, that there's a counter to a lot of this stuff in this development process of applying these questions and discovering character. I just taught this recently to a, a men, I have a, a mentee who runs, owns, operates a, a company that's about $100 million. It's tons of employees and um, was completely wrapped in his work and he couldn't get things done because he was so busy working in his company. And so I taught him this process and he was bringing a new operating director on at the same time. So we taught the operating director this process as well. And we had them go out and interview everybody in the organization. And so everybody suddenly had an idea of who everybody was from a management perspective, at least. The managers interviewed all of the employees. Then they went out and did some implementation things that, that we teach as well. And now it's been eight weeks later and he's absolutely blown away. He's like, I have so much free time because I got to know everybody. I implemented a structure where we would make lists of things very simple and accountable that drove the mission of the company. And we're now holding people accountable in weekly meetings like we never have before, but we're seeing morale go up, productivity go up, uh, his time free up. It's these very simple principled things that can drive your business um, so that you, you know, look at me, I, I have partial ownership in 70 companies and I don't do anything with any of them except if they call me and they have a problem and they ask, ask my advice. Like I'm not on the org chart and that's exactly where I, that's where I want myself. And anybody can do that. Mind you, I've got a 30 year head start on most of the people that are listening to this, but it was done incrementally. And most of it was done in the last eight years. Man, that's incredible. So after working with as many of the different brands and products that you have, how do you actually differentiate between what's going to be a successful product and what's not going to be a successful product? Well, hopefully by the time people have got to me, they've got a little bit of traction. They know 
something. They've, they've sold a few. Um, I, I have, I would say I have an instinctively good knack for picking products, but I don't pick products. I pick problems. I pick audiences. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you, if your product is solving a real problem and I don't see another solution for it, that's a good indicator that you're on to something. The second is, do you have an audience that has that problem? You can solve a real problem, but if there's no customers, it doesn't matter. So are there, is there an audience or multiples of audiences that can be addressed? And then uh, is there margin in it? Can we sell it? Can there, because margin is the fuel of advertising and marketing. Is there margin? And then is there a story? And my job is usually to help them develop a story. I'll give you an example of a winner that we picked in the last two years. Um, It's a company called Circle Beverages, a C-I-R-K-U-L. And they were under four or five different brand names, treating four or five different markets. And we went in about a year and a half ago and we we suggested that they consolidate that and just build one brand name, but have the, the advertising reach out to different markets. Now, what their product is, is really it's a cool product. It's a, it's a water bottle, kind of like a, a Nalgene bottle that we all carry with a screw on top. But inside the top, there's a cartridge that slides in and twists. And when you fill the device with water, it flavors that water as you draw, as you drink out of it. So the mm. flavor doesn't mix in the water. It stays in the container and the water comes through the container. So it dilutes and you, you get this flavor of water um, and you can fill the container five or six or seven times. Now they have 50 flavor packets that go in this thing. And they range from coffee flavors to sports drinks to soda pop flavors to all kinds of stuff. So they had this whole menagerie of flavors, which made it pretty hard to, to advertise to a narrow channel. So we started yeah. to split them up by channels, whether it was sports drinks, nutrition or protein or coffee or pop or like we just split them up by flavor profile. And the problem that they really solve is one, these t- types of beverages, whether it's a Starbucks cold coffee or Gatorade, they're two, three dollars a bottle. And these guys, one of these flavor things is, I don't know, two or three bucks. So you've, for the price of one of these things, you're getting six bottles. You can carry it through TSA because it's a little flavor cartridge in an empty container, then fill the bottle. So now you've got five, and we've all bought, you know, a beverage at the airport, and they go from $2 to $7 at the airport, right? So there's there's a whole bunch of ways we could deal with this, but everybody else in the space was fighting for flavor, 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 and these guys were too. And we simply went in and said, let's take flavor out of the equation and just assume you'll get whatever flavor you want. Cause that's actually too hard to sell. You start selling against Gatorade and uh, Starbucks and all of the other beverage makers, Coke and Pepsi. Everybody knows that they should drink more water, but water's boring. So let's attack that. And our tagline became finally water's your favorite beverage. Mm. So we went the exact opposite way that most people would probably go with this. But because of that, it attracted so much attention. It's get, now getting, they have easy retail placement, whether it's online or in stores, because they're not going against Coke or Pepsi. They're not attacking another vendor. They're just simply saying, you should drink a lot of water. Oh, and here's 50 flavors that'll make you make you happy about it. Which, what, what are you, a coffee person? Now people start to self-categorize. This is exactly what we did with GoPro, be a hero, was GoPro slogan. Mm-hmm. This slogan and water is now your finally favorite beverage is theirs. That has allowed them to grow the business in a year, get funding. And these are three guys out of Duke that run the business. So they're fairly young dudes. Mm-hmm. Um, their their valuation is now over a billion dollars. Jeez. Just like that from picking right. So if you're in a business, you need to think less about I think the features of your product and more the outcome, the benefit, the mm-hmm. actual benefit that the consumer gets at the end of the day. And who is that customer and talk to them one-on-one. Mm. 
at the end of the day, it's the same psychology that you have to take to high ticket marketing and high ticket sales is whenever you're selling that product, you have to be actually be selling the problem that you're solving, not the big software system, the big tech system that that person doesn't understand because that person doesn't care what how many flavors you have. They care about their one flavor that solves their problem and gives them more water like that's how. Do, so I'm very curious, how do you train your brain to step back and take that counterintuitive approach to a lot of these marketing campaigns? I, I ask myself simple questions. Uh, what is it? What is it really at its core? So get past its features and to its benefit. Who wants it? Do they really want it? What's the problem they currently have? And then what's the simple question that you're really solving for? So go back to the water example. If you think about it, everybody who gets in the flavored beverage business sells flavor. Oh, mm-hmm. our cherry's more cherry, our Coke's more Coke, whatever it is. And I get focused on flavor. But what, what everybody knows is that no matter what you buy, 95% of it is water. So they, by taking the, the, the spin on finally water is your favorite beverage. Now I'm putting weight on something that's a nutritional idea that they already believe. They've already been, it's already been pounded into them. They should drink more water. But even the guys in the water business aren't saying you should just drink more water. They're saying we have better water. We're Dasani, we're, we're Perrier, we're Topo Chico. Everybody's selling better water. Like, okay, mm-hmm. let's just say, let's just sell water. Let's just sell the, the space that's available. You know, I'm not going to buy Dasani water because it's boring and I feel ripped off for buying a $3 bottle of water because I know it's freaking water and I get it out of my tap. So I go to the simple thing. So I think it's, um, it, it's learning how to uncomplicate your brain and realize that the people that you're selling to are not 20 year olds or 40 year olds or 60 or 80 year olds. They're probably four to seven year olds in bodies that are of those ages. Everybody's like between four and 14. They really are. At the end of the day, when, when we all go home, we are, we really are. We really are. And people want their jammies and they want a hug and they want a, a, a warm drink and they want to feel good. And they want comfort. They want to be loved. That, like our actual social needs from each other are pretty caveman, simple and pretty childish. Yeah. And if you can appeal to that, you're going to tap into something. Mm. Man. So I have one more question about selecting partners and products. So mm-hmm. you said that you don't do, you have to mesh with the people in order to do business with, with them. So I'm sure out of the 300 products that you've done business with, you've seen just as many products that looked good at the surface level, the person looked like they had everything going for them, like the business looked like they had everything straight. But at the end of the day, a lot of the people in the entrepreneur space, especially in the marketing world, they really don't have what they portray on the surface level. What questions do you ask those people to actually pick out the posers out of the real people who are doing it? Okay, so when I go through that initial get to know you interview, that those answers are revealed in there. Mm-hmm. And what you'll find is um, the people that you don't want to work with are the insecure. Um, mm-hmm. And we all have insecurities, but there's a difference between having insecure and being completely insecure. The people that want to get rich, because getting rich is an outcome, and you can't simply chase the outcome. That's like saying, I want to win an Oscar. Well, yeah, there's a couple of steps involved in winning an Oscar, and some of them are in the hands of other people. Um, so you can't just decide that. Um, you, Anybody who's looking for fame, I immediately sniff that out. So if you're looking to be rich and famous, I am probably not going to work with you because that'll come out in the interview. And mm-hmm. that never... Those personality traits always come up in business as being 
the blocks. Suddenly the person wants to have complete creative control of something when they have no experience of creative control. Um, like they've never done anything successful. And even within our own industry, I see people that sell a lot of products in the advertising and marketing space and psychology space. And I kind of go, okay, well, where's your NASCAR? Like I can, I can point and I go, okay, I got GoPro, I got Eagle One, I got Samsung, I got J&J. Like I can point to products in the real world that I helped create that I undeniably, like the evidence is there, I did it. Yeah. And a ton of these other people have none of that. And they're, they're speaking with complete authority and people are buying into it. And I kind of scratch my head and I never, like, I never point to an individual, but I watch and I go, yeah, that's looking for fame and looking for money. The thing that actually brings you success is providing success to somebody else. Mm. A really great product only needs me to get it started. Because if it's a really great product, the audience starts talking about it. Yep. If I've done my job right as a storyteller, I, I have helped program them into repeating my pitch so they know what to say to their friends. Mm -hmm. they, need, they go, hey, here's my thing. It makes me so much smarter. Or here's my GoPro. I'm going to go home and put footage of myself skiing like a badass on YouTube or Facebook. And I don't have to say I'm a badass skier. <laughs> and somebody else sees that and goes, oh, I want one of those. And the, the product starts to sell itself. So the cost yeah. of advertising and customer acquisition goes way, way down. The sales volume goes way, way up. And that's where you're making money. That's where money's made. Well, money's made then by providing a great product to the world, telling them it's a great product, letting them repeat that story, and letting the sales take off, being able to fulfill on the promise. So that's how mm -hmm. I pick. And it's not really that difficult when you start to, to suss it down into something that is not... I need to make money. I need to make this a success and I need to steal money out of customers' wallets. How many people can I get to give me money? That's mm. a terrible business plan. But that is 90% of the world is operating with that crap business plan. It definitely is the vast majority of people. So I think that's actually a very good transition into my next question, which is after launching so many of these products, once you've found your winning product, what does the anatomy of a successful launch look like typically to you? One is proper asset collection up front. What happens a lot of times is folks um, think that they need to create the perfect ad. So they go and put their, their asset dollars to the perfect ad. Mm -hmm. Um. I look at it a little differently. First, I want to know the product works. So, and I want to know the company can back it. So this is a really simple financial test is I just ask them for free, free product. I want to go shoot some testimonials. Give me 20 free products. And if they say, I can't, oh God, we can't afford to give you 20 free products. I know it's not a real company because mm -hmm. who wouldn't give 20 products away to people that are going to make free advertising for them. Yeah. So so that's a good financial test. So then, okay, now I believe in the product. I say 20, I want 20 samples. They give me the 20 samples. I'm going to do a few things. I'm going to take some of those samples and I'm going to give them to people that I know are articulate and smart and savvy. And I'm going to give them a, a one sheet that says, hey, here's what this product claims to do. This is why people love it. This is what, it, use it this way, use it that way, little instructions. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to videotape an interview with you. The questions are on the back. So they'll flip that paper over and they'll see about 10 or 12 questions I'm going to ask them in a week or two or three when I interview them. Okay. So they go away. Now I'm going to build an asset, right? This is a very inexpensive asset to set up a green screen in my studio and have them come in and or man on the street. And then I take the rest of those samples and I go to do a man on the street. Is I take a, my camera crew and we go out into the public and I shoot people's first responses to it because that can't be faked. People know when that's real and when it's not real. So now I've got testimonial users. I've got people on the street. Now I can create an animation asset and a short video asset. And I have a whole bunch of combinations of content then mm. that I can reach out into the media and use, whether I want to start lead people at the top funnel with man on the street or an animation or listen to what this person says about how it changed their life. There's a lot of roads to Rome, right? So mm -hmm. I can reorganize those and probably have assets built and then do a product shoot where I have pretty pictures of the product. So it looks like it's a credible thing that if you ordered it, you'd be satisfied with it. Yeah. 
Um, so it's getting that correct. Now, the step in front of that is writing a creative and strategic brief that identifies this is what the business is. Most people skip that step entirely. It's the biggest mistake in business. It's the number one product we sell and teach and teach to sell is sitting down with your client or with your own product at the beginning and answering some simple, organized questions that give you about a 20-page document that says, this is what the problem is. This is our solution. This is our USP. Here's all of our features and benefits. Here's the five audiences. Here's the five offers. Here's who's going to appreciate it. And then here's the sales argument. Like This is very simple, rudimentary things that people don't do. They simply go, let's make an ad. And we'll try this price point. Let's go down Facebook. And it's the dumbest thing in the world. And they wonder why they fail and they get frustrated. I start out with a, with a toolkit, with a whole drawer full of assets that we can test in a variety of ways. That way we don't get too emotional about what we're doing. And we can just mm -hmm. test, 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 test into success. And then we start to assemble the part, parts and pieces that work like Legos. And we have a successful campaign. And then we do our analysis and go, what can we do to make it better? That's but you genius. engineer for success that way. That's genius, man. So what are some of your favorite traffic sources to use to test assets so that you can figure out what's working as quickly as possible? Um, de depends on who the client is and what the, what the product is. But we utilize Facebook. We utilize YouTube. We utilize uh, TV. We utilize radio. Um, I might go, in a simple application might go from Facebook to radio to TV, just because radio is cheaper. If it does, if the product creates, if you can deal with the product in an audio way, if it's not a show and tell product, um, but if it's something that must be seen, then you have to get to a visual medium. Yep. And I, I like YouTube a lot, by the way. I, I like the the length of it. TikTok's kind of useful for for lead gen for the top, for top funnel. Um, TikTok seems to be a very good place to test things right now. Yeah, even just organically, the way that their algorithm is is pretty incredible. Yeah, they're trying to get everybody. Welcome to China. <laughs> oh man, yeah, pretty much. You know what they're doing. Awesome, man. So. Let's talk about the couple things that everybody wanted me to ask you about. I'm sure they're the things that you get asked about on every show you get on, but everyone wants to know, like, what is, what is your process when creating a winning headline? Um, so first I do the creative brief. So I don't rush and create the headline, right? I go and I do that process of the 20 page creative brief. And while I'm in the midst of that, I typically discover four or five, what I would call tendrils into the product. So we have a fitness product and it works off of resistance. So I started doing research around resistance and I discovered there's a lot of people that hate resistance exercise. They just call it crap. Like gym rats, bodybuilders, there's, there's so, tons of pros that say resistance exercise is garbage. But NASA has a $13 million resistance exercise device in the, in the International Space Station because it's the, actually the only way you can get muscles to function and work and do what they're supposed to do in zero gravity. So as you can imagine, there's a, a plethora of NASA science behind this before that they put this in the International Space Station and spent all this money. And the research goes all the way back to the Gemini space program before Apollo. So when they were just shooting, Mer like Mercury and Gemini, just shooting people into space, flying around the earth before Apollo missions went to the moon, they were testing human physiology and how people would stay healthy in space. And it turned out in zero gravity, your muscles atrophy really fast and your bones start to decay as if they had osteoarthritis and or osteoporosis. And within the time it would take us to fly human beings from the, the Earth to Mars, which is now where we're headed, apparently, you would end up having brittle bones like an 80-year-old if you didn't do resistance exercises. So now I've got this whole pool of interesting inroads and things to talk about that are corroborated in a tough market. 
So that leads me to questions. Now, how subject lines and questions then become easy. I always use a question because the mind can't not answer a question. So all, all, all of my, um, do, how warm is it in the room you're in? Room temperature, I, I, that's a hard, I, I don't know, man. It's probably like 70 degrees. Okay, how tall are you? Five, eight. See, you're, I'm like, you just, you, it's, it's not threatening to, to answer a question. We just, we can't not, there's no reason to not answer that question. Our mind just immediately goes, well, God, I've asked, I got it. Cause we're, it's survival mode. Like we think our, our, in the core of our brain, survival mode is always running in the background. So when we're asked a question, we're forcibly forced to answer the question. So if I ask the right question at the top of the creative and I just start asking the right questions, if I ask you four or five of the right questions, I can sell you before you even know what I'm selling. Mm. So I can start Thanks. that creative with. You let people come to their own conclusions in their mind with the questions too. Yeah, but they're going to come to the, like if I ask, the, if I ask the question like a good lawyer, I'm already in control of the answer. Would you like to, would you like people to consider you to be good looking? I'm in control yeah. of that answer. Everybody's going to say yeah. yes to that. Yeah, I want to be considered good looking. So if you want to be attractive, did you know there's one simple thing you can do that'll actually triple the idea of you being attractive in someone else's mind? Are you curious to know what that is? I think anyone is. Right? Just like, like boom, boom. I, I was in charge of all of the answers. I just stacked them. But when I tell you the answer is simply smile. Because if you smile, you come across as non-threatening. And when you show your teeth, you're actually showing your health because people take a quick snapshot subconsciously of the whiteness of your teeth and the whiteness of your eyes. And they determine, even if they're, they're, you're not um, of their target, let's say. Men do this to men. Women do this to women. Men do this to women. Women do this to men. Like It doesn't matter what the sexual combination is. When you greet somebody and meet somebody, you're assessing their health at a subconscious level. Your brain is saying, is this person trustworthy, safe, going to give me a disease, blah, 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 blah. Like there's this whole thing that is going on internally where you're assessing another person when you meet them. And when you smile and you have bright eyes, they know you're healthy, you're happy, you're psychologically stable. Now they have to decide whether it's honest or you're fooling them, whether you're trustworthy or not really simple mm. thing that happens to us at a subconscious level the second we meet somebody new but we all do it it's it's a hardwired human survivor trait and i sometimes get into trouble talking with folks because they say oh you're being sexist or what like whatever goes with that and it's like you know I'm just talking about cavemen here. These are, we have traits that are innately human. And a lot of them are driven by survival instincts and subconscious tapes that we have playing all the time by the nature of our humanity. Yep. And if you, if you don't look at the world in that way, I think it's totally great, but don't get into marketing. <laughs> Because marketing and sales and communication really is about not just categorizing people and being dismissive about it, but be categorizing them so that you can speak to them in their language and you can be heard. Um, yeah. And that's the purpose of it. Man, so how do you – I'm curious whenever that topic comes up and you get into trouble, how do you handle those conversations because it is – as a marketer, sometimes hard to transition from the language that we're going to use sitting down with other marketers or at the boardroom table to the general public. And then sometimes it will come off as a just a very broad categorization or something like that. How do you respond to those people? Well, I can make broad categorizations, categorizations that are accurate. 
And my answer is, if you don't like them, that's too bad. But bears have claws. Now you can bring me a, you can go find me a declawed bear and say, oh no, I found a bear without claws. But my answer is, you're wrong. Bears have. Claws. But he's not going to knock your head off, still. But but bears have claws. Let's you know, there's some things that we should be able to agree to. Um, if we if we want to say women are not gatherers and men aren't hunters, I'm going to tell you that's a lie. But, yeah, that's. Now, now that doesn't mean absolutely every man is a hunter. It's a broad generalization that men are hunters and women are gatherers. Yes, there are some women hunters. Very, very rare. And I can, I mean, I can actually mathematically define it for you. Because we have this thing called um, colorblindness. And we tend to, in our society, think of colorblindness as a deficit. Men who can't see color. Men who can't see color arrive in our society at about a rate of, I think, about 4%. Women who can't see color arrive at a rate of 0.02%. Hmm. Women aren't colorblind. In fact, women can see 300 times more quality of color than men can. They can smell better, smell more smells than men can. Why? Men who cannot see color that is actually a, a, it's not a deficit. It's a, it's a superiority trait. It allows you to see past camouflage. Mm. Men who can't see color see shape and movement much faster in the cones of their eyes than they see colors in the rods of their eyes. So they're dominant on movement and shape. So they can see a deer deep in the wood. They can see a flounder that's the same color as the sand that is laying on or a crunch. There's, there's things that we feel like we understand and we, hey, in society we'll say, hey, men are colorblind. That's too bad. That, look at the guy's clothes don't match and make fun of him. But what they may not realize is that that guy is a superior hunter by his genealogy. Yeah. Man. It really does pay to get down to just the core cavemen thoughts of who your audience is. And I think that is, as you said, one of the one of the things that people skip whenever they're creating their marketing plan and stuff like that. No one really sits down and just answers simple questions and gets to know and gets to know their audience like that. Yeah. Do you um do you do you have any objects on your desk there? Pen, paper, glass, cup, anything? I have a cup. Okay, hold that up. Okay, thanks. Here's the next lesson. Customers, just like you, are compliant. If you ask somebody to do something that's not, not really offensive to them, that's no big deal, they're going to do it. So if I say, hey, what's on your desk? Pick up. You had no problem going, yeah, I got a cup right here, and you pick up the cup. It's not like they were, you weren't resistant to do that at all, were you? No. You're, you're just like, okay, weird question, Ron, but... Yeah, I got a cup. So what? So as a marketer, your job is to get the person so ingrained in visualizing their problem and then so seeing your solution so clearly that you say, my solution is the blue cup in front of you. Would you just pick it up in order? And they comply because it makes sense to comply. There's no resistance to comply mm. with the sales process because you've adequately addressed all of their issues and they're actually looking forward to picking up the cup wow. how fast can i get it here let's rush ship it here man that's genius so with all of this knowledge that you have if you had to start over today with the state of the market the way that everything is what would your strategy be what audience would you what audiences would you target like how would you start over so what are the biggest issues in the world for individuals that's that's the first thing i go what, what's a problem that needs to be solved so right now money and health problem. okay so health gets very specific and i like that because it gets specific so you have to go into what area of health What's the what's the specific problem? So if I went into an area of health and I actually have a product that's going on air this next week, 
with Daniel Amen around this is I, I'd go into stress and anxiety Absolutely. because everybody is living on like it's the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis right now. Everybody's like living on edge, like they're tomorrow we're going to wake up and what the hell's going to happen in the world? Like there's this general malaise and angst and anxiety in the world. Okay. So some of the things I do, like I don't need to necessarily make money on everything that I do. So I go and I wrote a book on uh, kind of biblical prophecy and where we are in the timeline of that, because there's an audience for that. And reading that gives them some sense of, oh, this is what's going on in the world. So I give that away. Then I have another book on survival tactics. Like, hey, if the power went out tomorrow and stayed out for six weeks due to a grid failure or an EMP or God knows whatever, what are the things you actually need in your house to survive for six weeks so that you don't have to leave because leaving your house will be more dangerous than just staying home? Here's a six-week list. And I give that away. Now, those create lead generation. Am I doing anything with those leads? Do I have some nefarious plan? No. But I have bundles of audiences that I collect over the years that have different needs. And should I just say, hey, I've got, I think I've got a product that I'd like to test in that category. Now I have a group of people that, have, that trust me that I can reach out to and go, hey, would you mind testing out this product for me? And psh, they come back, they'll test the product for sure. I'll definitely get, because there's a degree of trust. So one is find a problem in the world. Two, be a credible person between now and then. Like credibility matters. If you don't have credibility, there's no reason anybody should trust you anyways. So be honest and sincere and help people and build credibility and relationships that are truthful and useful. So who you are matters more than what you do. Then once you're, you're once you're that person, then find a problem and solve it. Mm. Like, I'll give you another example of something that we're solving for. Um, we grew up in an era, and I'm much older than you, but you still are part of that era, where being famous was really important. Getting like getting your attention, getting your 15 minutes of fame, is more important to some young people than anything, and it, it, I find it bizarre. Um, I worked very hard to not be famous. <laughs> yes, you have. I, I'm I'm very good at hiding. Um, and I think one of the things that's going to come up as Web 3.0 comes up is anonymity. One of the things that we blew over in the Bill of Rights, because there was no technology and Thomas Paine and Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and Adams didn't, had not, considered is there would be all of this electronic technology that could be utilized for surveillance. So it's not that difficult to think five years into the future and say, hey, you've pissed off somebody in a place of power. They're now going to go into your digital history and they're going to start digging until they can find something to humiliate you by, embarrass you by, call you a liar, a crime, get you thrown in jail. You could forensically go through pretty much all of our backgrounds and find something that would shame all of us. And shame is a pretty powerful tool in this culture. Mm -hmm. So why is it not that when you type into your keyboard, that's not your typing? Google owns it. Facebook owns it. Amazon owns it. It's your typing. It's coming out of your head. Shouldn't that data be yours? Shouldn't your behavior online be your history, just like your thoughts or your thoughts that no one has access to? Why do they, by default, get access to all of your thinking? And Because there's no tool for you to capture it. Hmm. Well, what if there was a way for you to go online and be anonymous? What if there was a way for you to go online and have five different avatars? We'll call one Trey Hollywood. So Trey Hollywood has a cartoon avatar and he's out there on the internet and he has his own Facebook and his own TikTok and his own YouTube. And that guy, Trey Hollywood, that animated guy is super famous and he offers advice about business and he's really smart, but, but nobody really knows who he is. 
But you can send him money via PayPal and it goes to him and he can buy things and have them shipped to his house. Trey Hollywood can get things from Amazon, but still nobody knows who Trey Hollywood is. Why should you not have that? Why should you not own your own identity? Anonymity is going to be the next celebrity. Yeah. People are going to want to not be known. That's, I, that's, I want, we already want to not be known. It's overwhelming. Yeah, but right now they own all your data. So we're, we're out there actively creating tools and products that help you capture your own data and be your own avatar. And then you can be Trey Work, Trey Home, Trey whatever. You can have all kinds of personas. And then you have to have one official one that, you know, yeah, I, dri I drive, I have a gun permit, I travel, I have a MasterCard, I pay the IRS through this identity. I go into all these other virtual worlds through these other various identities. Why wouldn't you? Uh... It's silly that we don't. That's a basic human right. How come now education, all of the education you could ever want to give any person to any level is on the internet, yet we have a college loan problem. Everybody has a right to an education. We could distribute globally free education for every child on this planet in an AI machine learned fashion where a child could successfully become whatever they wanted to be that was also following their interest and their aptitude. How many people right now have a job that they hate? Most people. The majority. What if you had gone through school and you'd actually learned something that you loved? Yeah, the vast majority of people would be significantly more successful, I feel like. And how many more problems would there be in the world? Less. Educated people have less instance of drug abuse and alcoholism. They have less kids. They have higher incomes. They have higher uh, rates of joy. Fulfilled people are happy. So why do we have a system that's built on failing people and making them um, unhappy? Because we can sell them a bunch of stuff. Yep. Pharmaceuticals, crappy food, get them to go to the, how many people go to their job every day? Now you realize that about half to Somewhere between 50 and 57% of the money you earn on a day-to-day -day basis at your job goes to the state in some form of taxation, whether it's gas tax, employment tax, property yep. tax, Somehow sales tax. There's zillions and zillions and zillions of taxes. So then the 45% of the money that you get to keep, how much of that goes to a mortgage or rent, a car payment, an electrical bill, for most people, 100% of the money they earn is just to stay alive yep. at a game player level existence by giving money back to the machine, just giving it back to the casino. They're in the casino and that's how their life is. They're just a person in the casino working and gambling and giving all the money back to the casino and that's their whole life. And they get eight hours of sleep if they're lucky at night. And we wonder why they do drugs on the weekend. Fuck, I do drugs on the weekend if that was my situation. Right? Yep. That's where we're at. That needs to change. Yep. It needs to change and it can change. It totally can change. It's well within our means to make it change. The first thing is making people aware that it can change or that it's even happening. Most people aren't even aware that that's what they're doing with their life. And they don't want to be told because it makes them suicidal to hear it. But if yep. you can grab that and go, you know what? I want to change it. Then you can change it. Absolutely. People don't like to recognize their reality. Well, because it's effort to change. Mm -hmm. But once you've gone through the hoops of the change and you realize how valuable it is to, to one, own your own thoughts and your own time. And like, that's freedom. But most of us are on a form of a digital plantation right now. Absolutely. Man, that's a that's an exciting thing, and it's definitely something that's going to be taking over here sooner than we know it. I mean, these record labels that have been 
on top for years are signing AI artists and stuff like that now. Like music is being created by computers. Like it, it people are going to get more and more anonymous. And honestly, we're going to start seeing more and more of just what we're consuming being generated by the consumer as well. So like we're going to have to figure out if it's even an anonymous person or if it's just a computer that's generating stuff soon. Right. So then then talent and creativity becomes a premium. Oh, this is a real person. I'll pay more for that. Here's the here's the rub in this that I think that that needs to be acknowledged is we are actually at the moment where we can erase the record companies involved. We can networks where the artists actually produce their own art and they get paid for it instead of the record company. Like you've heard these stories about people who have music on Spotify, like huge stars and they're getting checks for $14. Like there, there once was a time in this country where it was you and your record label, which was a record producer. So it was two people and they had a record label and they made a record label and they became, that's when we had rich rock stars, right? That's all gone away. So they're all corporate rock stars. Now, the only way a rock star can make any money is they have to go out on the road and have big concert tours because the, the label and Apple Music is getting all of the cash from the recordings. And they're not getting that. They're getting a tiny little stipend from it. So that's why the, the Rolling Stones even and the Dave Matthews of the world, shit, Mick Jagger's 80 years old and he's out there dancing across the stage like a monkey every night. Unbelievable. But he loves it and he wants to stay rich. Yep. Everybody wants to stay rich once they get rich. And re relevant. Rich and relevant. That's kind of what everybody wants to be these days. I want to be anonymously wealthy and completely irrelevant. That sounds even more appealing. It's way more, it's way more fun. Because <sighs> then you can kind of just do whatever you want. Yeah, you go to restaurants and you leave and you're like, who is that guy? And they're like, I don't know. I want to be that guy. I want to be, my license plate might be, I don't know. Yeah, that's... That's what actual freedom looks like. Like everybody idolizes all these celebrities and wants their life. But like to think about just like being done eating and trying to walk out of a restaurant, go home and just have people recognize you and talk to you like that does not. I don't know how that sounds appealing to a lot of people. Well, fortunately or not, in my world, I, I, I live in that world. I, I have obviously clients and friends and that are rich millionaires some of them are athletes some of them are actors some of them are singers some of them are business moguls um and i mean that's one of the the rules of the unknown rules is i don't share them with people like you can't call me and say hey can i have so-and-so's phone number i'm like no because I, I would end my relationship with them because we exist in a bubble where i respect their identity and i don't approach them with deals so they trust me but one of the things you find with famous people and it's one of the things that helps me become their friend frequently very early on is I don't care that much about fame so when I meet them I don't gush and I'll talk about their work or someone else's work and I'll talk to them about mundane things in life too and uh, then I'll it's not unusual for someone to say hey uh, can I get your phone number I'd like, I'd like to hang out with you more or I'm I'm going on a vacation to such and such place. Maybe you should come down and hang out for a couple of days. And that doesn't make me feel cooler. It makes me realize that they don't have any freaking friends. Because everybody around them is picking on them like they're a, a, one of those sticks that the birds pick at. Yep. They're just a stick of bird seed to most people. They're not actually being treated like a human being that everybody's leveraging of hey, I want to get close to you because I, I can get something out of it. And so, yeah, 90% of the time, I don't go on vacation with those people. And I don't, I, I, I do get my phone number out, but I don't treat them any differently than the rest of my peer group. So if one of them were to call me while I'm on the podcast with you, I wouldn't say, oh, let's, we got to stop. I got to take this call from the super important. I'm like, whatever, I'll call them back whenever. And I do. So people too, and that's how they want to be treated at the end of the day. But no, this is the thing about fame. Like River Phoenix was a good friend of mine. He was the, probably the first person who taught me this lesson. I, inadvertently, he wasn't looking to teach me a lesson. Um, 
we went out one night and we went to this venue that served food but also had bands and there was a band that got up on stage that um turned later turned out to be pearl jam years later um and river interrupted the band he was really drunk got up on stage fashioned himself a rock star he had his own band back in florida he got up and he he sang an ass out of himself and it was kind of rude and uh, but everybody applauded and there was about 10 of his friends there. And so he came back, sat down at the table. We left, we were kind of stumbling down the street and he goes, how was that? That was cool, huh? And I said, no, actually, dude, that was embarrassing. Like those guys, they were performing. It would be like if you were on set making a movie and someone stumbled onto the set and started being drunk in the middle of the scene. And he looked at me and his eyes got really wide. And it sobered him up for a minute. And he's like, we need to hang out more because everybody around him was letting him behave poorly and yeah. not telling him. And someone who stepped in and said, dude, that you were out of line, that he that meant something to him. And when about two years later, he died in front of the Viper Room um, in on Sunset Boulevard, I was staying in a hotel in uh, San Francisco. I was on my way to Hawaii with my wife. And uh, the news came across that he had died in front of the Viper Room. And it made me sad because it's like, yeah, if I'd been there, I, I wouldn't have gone. Yeah, keep doing lines, buddy. Keep pumping yourself full of drugs. Like, we were friends. And I thought, I'm never going to be that person. Hmm. It's very hard to be that person that holds people accountable. But it really comes from a very deep place of compassion and i i don't know why most people just don't step up and be that person for the people they care about more often yeah yeah and i think that's important and on the same side on the other side on the river side of the thing i see how fame is like a funhouse mirror that you like to look at yourself and be surrounded by mm. people that reflect you to you and never say no no matter how twisted the image gets um, but that's why I think fame is dangerous. Um, I think it's, it's, it leads to a lot of really easy slip and falls for all, most of us. And I think we see that in a lot of media, a lot of people. Yeah, There's not a whole lot of people like, like Denzel Washington who do it really well. They're, they're far and few between that can actually do it well and maintain it. Uh, most people they do they do things in a sprint and then they burn out and then they sprint and then they burn out and it takes I, I, i'm curious what it is that really shifts in people to really move over to that marathon mentality i guess it does it come with age or what what is that do you think um i think that there's it's probably a value system that was instilled by their parents initially but uh, i think of experience to um you you have experiences as a young person you can or you're fortunate to have experiences and you start to see oh yeah that's not so great like one of the very first jobs i ever got i was about 10 years old and i did a commercial on television and that led to me meeting jane Curtin, who was quite famous in the 70s she was on saturday night live and tom um Selleck who were in a, they were in a movie together. They played a married couple getting divorced. And I met them on set and I was probably 10 or 12 years old. And I asked Jane Curtin, who was again, extremely famous at the moment, if I could have an autograph. And she said, I don't sign. And I was like devastated. It, was, it took me all this courage as a little kid to ask her for an autograph. And she just kind of spit in my face. And then I asked, Tom Selleck, which I was even more scared of because he was a much bigger star than she was at the time. Like he had Magnum PI under his belt. And he was like, Yeah, sure, no problem, man. And he got, you know, he's a really tall guy. He got way down and he talked to me for five minutes and made me feel like a person. I'm like, okay, there's two ways to do fame. Her way and his way. I like his way. He's a, and you just kind of learn that they're all just people. Um, but the the value centered of being famous ain't an is not a very high value for me. Mm. You can you can tell when it's not for that person too. 
Like there's celebrities that being famous is not a very high value for them, but for, for others, it's the whole thing. Absolutely. Man, so I know how valuable your time is and I don't want to take up much more of it. So I know you do a lot of hiding. I know you don't really want to be found on the internet, but what is the best way for people to get involved, involved with you and see more of you? Um, well, I'm, I am pretty visible on Facebook, I guess. Um, I run a, um, a mentoring course that's 13, 14 weeks long that is called the Marketing Mercenary. Um, so generally Facebook Messenger is an okay way, but if you, if you have a serious company or a serious business that you really want to have creative solutions for, reach out to me at um, Ron at Big Baby Agency. That's Ron at B-I-G-B-A-B-Y Agency, Big Baby Agency, and dot uh, com. And uh, introduce yourself. If you want a shortcut to kind of the methodologies that I use, there's a book called Buy Now, B-U-Y-N-O-W, that I wrote with my former partner, Rick Cesari, and that's available on Amazon. Um, and they can teach you how to write a creative brief and how to look at products and things like that. That's a good precursor. A lot of awesome, clients man. are led to us by that. Awesome, man. Well, yeah. thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I appreciate you. Awesome, man. That was great. Thanks again for tuning in for another episode. Make sure that you subscribe to the show so you're never left out in the snow. Do you want to build a business or get more customers online? Are you tired of spending all your time shackled to your business? Tired of being treated like the court jester? Not anymore. You can get a care package from Trey today for just a buck that will help you beat shiny object syndrome with Trey's favorite tool list. Build your online authority and network with your own podcast and by being interviewed on other podcasts. Systemize your business with Trey's seven pillar system. Hire a VA to get your time back and so much more. You heard me right. All of that for less than the last Starbucks you got. Go to TreyCarmichael.us and get yours while it's hot. Check the couch for that dollar if you gotta.